turn to Psalm 51. This is part two of our time in Psalm 51. And again, the title of our time in this psalm for these sermons is All of Salvation is of the Lord. So let's begin reading. To the choir master, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins And blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. May the Lord bless and use his word this morning. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 6 and saw David's love and trust in God and his resting and proclaiming the gospel of grace. And this morning we'll continue to look at those things in verses 7 through 13. 
David continues to unpack gospel truths. David continues to unpack what it looks like to cry out to God by faith when we sin. Again, this, these sins are specific to David. This is David's cry to the Lord. But as David cries to the Lord, he sets a pattern. He sets a standard by Holy Scripture. This is what we have to not miss is that when we pray, it's just our prayers. But David praying in Psalm 51 is guided by the Holy Spirit in such a way that this is Holy Scripture. So it's both David's prayer and it's God's gift to us. We have to see that even though it's the the speakings of our brother, it's primarily the speakings of our father. We need to understand this because if we don't, we'll say, well, I didn't sin like David, so this doesn't apply to me. All sin deserves death. All sin is displeasing to God. All sin requires an atonement. And David is graciously and lovingly helping us see how we are washed, how we are cleansed, and how we are restored unto God. But not restored just to be still but restored to action. So let's look at verses 7 through 13 and see these beauties this morning as our Lord teaches us how to pray. David says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David's a believer. David is a man after God's own heart, but David has sinned against God. So by faith, David is crying out to God, for he knows that only God can clean a sinner. Only God can wash away our sins. David is saying, if you act, Lord, I shall be clean. If you act, Lord, I shall be whiter than snow. See, when we're saved, we trust in the finished work of Jesus. And, I, and we understand that all our past sins have been cleansed and washed away. But even when we say that as a, as a baby believer, we don't even see the extent of the sins that God has washed away. And even after we're saved, God brings to remembrance sins that we've done in the past. What do we do with them? We sin in the present. What do we do with them? We sin in the future. What what will we do with them? And the way to deal with sin is to remember the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. To remember that he has ascended and he is seated on the throne of heaven. And when you sin today, you must cry out for God to cleanse you, not because you need to get saved, but because you need to be washed. You need to be sanctified. You need to be purified from the sin that you've committed. And the only way to do that is to rejoice in the once finished work of Christ. We don't put Christ back up on the cross. We don't have him live again and die again and rise again every time we sin. But we rest in the things that he's already done. No matter how hard a man tries, a man can never, ever cleanse himself of his own sin. Think of every other world religion. They all have something to do. Some act, washing in a river, doing rituals, saying prayers over and over and over again, crying out to dead saints. But no matter how hard man tries, he can never wash away even one sin. 
But we also need to be clear is that no one else can wash away our sins. There's no priest that can absolve us of our sin. There's no man on earth that can do something for us to make our sin go away. It's impossible. Dead saints are worshiping God if they're true saints. They don't hear our prayers. They don't answer our prayers. They don't tug on Jesus' robe and ask him to listen. Mary can't cleanse us. The Pope can't cleanse us. No one can cleanse us from our sin except King Jesus. And King Jesus is ruling and reigning as the sovereign king of the universe. See, the beauty is, is that it's easy to say that Jesus is sovereign. It's easy to say that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. But the way that we show we actually believe it is by doing what he commands us to do. Doing what he instructs us to do. And what I mean is not just doing it, but believing that it is the secondary cause that this king is ordained for us to be cleansed. God gave us prayer as his gift to us, but it's the secondary cause primarily caused by God. In other words, God uses prayer to change us, not we to change God. See, God gives us prayers in Scripture to help us to know how to pray, just as his disciples ask, Lord, teach us how to pray. And what we do when we pray is is we praise the things that are revealed in Scripture about God, because it's worship. We cry out for God to do what we can't do, and we rest in his promises because we know that they're yes and amen in Jesus. See, the secondary cause that is established by God, is how he rules in this world. We need to see this. We need to understand that when we do the things that we do, we're not changing God. We're not somehow doing his will that he's unable to do. But as we act by faith, we're actually walking in the good works that he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in. He's ruling in us. As Paul said to the Philippians, he works in us and through us so that we desire the right desires and he gives us the ability to do what's required. Everyone confesses, oh, God saves. And then everyone struggles to sanctify themselves. Beloved, if you try to sanctify yourself, you will never be sanctified. Paul makes it so clear that he skips sanctification in Romans. He who he justifies, he will glorify. The bookends God does, he doesn't leave the middle to us. It's as if Paul says, if you are justified, you will be glorified. Those links are locked together. How? By God's work in sanctification. As we read his word, as we pray, as we fellowship, as we enjoy one another, as we hear his word preached and taught. As I preach... If I'm preaching God's word, it's God preaching to us. I'm not the primary cause, I'm the secondary cause. Because it's God's word. It's God's truth. If I preach what's wrong, then that's my sin. That's my flesh getting in the way. But beloved, when we do what God requires us to do, we're merely the secondary cause. But don't look at the secondary cause as I can do it or I can't do it or it's optional. That's how God rules. 
That's how God turns the heart of the king so the king does what God wants to do. He can do that with a pagan. Surely we believe he does that to those who cry out and say, Lord, work your will in me. If God can do it to someone who doesn't love God, hates God, opposes God, and yet he can turn that king's heart to do his exact will, why wouldn't he do that in his people lovingly and graciously? See, only Jesus can cleanse sinners through his one-time sacrifice of himself as the Holy Lamb of God. Jesus didn't go to the temple and say, well, let me get a lamb, let me get a bull, let me get a grain offering. Let me light a candle for my people and then they'll be saved. No, he took himself as the holy lamb of God without sin and sacrificed himself so that we could be set free. We sang a beautiful statement that he bore the wrath of God, shielding sinners by his blood. God's wrath was fully poured out, but it was fully absorbed by Christ. He drank it down to the last dreg so that every sin that we commit in this life, as we cry out to God, the answer is, it's paid for. It's paid for. It's paid for. There's never a time we cry out, Lord, forgive me of sin X. And God goes, whoa, didn't see that one coming. He's sovereign. He knew every sin we would commit before we committed it. He knows our desires before we express them. He knows the words of our prayer even before we make them known. And yet he commands us to make them known. See, the reason why Jesus' blood today is perfect is because he is a perpetual mediator for the church. His one-time sacrifice is what he uses to cleanse his church. He doesn't send another lamb. He doesn't send another sacrifice. He doesn't do some magical incantation. He doesn't pray some words so that our, prayer, that our sins are washed. It's his one-time sacrifice that does this. Therefore, our faith must rest in the work and person of Christ alone. In his righteousness, his life that he lived from the cradle to the cross. In his death, that perfect death as he hung on a cross so that as he is insulted, as people hurl hateful words toward him, as he is nailed upon a piece of wood, the creator of that wood, the creator of all those that are abusing him, his death is pure, perfect in the eyes of God. In his resurrection, because he was raised for our justification. It's God Almighty saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. In his ascension, as he is ascended to his rightful place, seated at the right hand of God, and in his perfect rule as the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, that's where our faith must rest. The gospel was good news the day we were saved, and it's good news every day afterwards, and we need to preach it to ourselves. Again, not as some believe, well, I sinned yesterday, so I lost my salvation. Now I need to repent and get resaved and rebaptized and go through the motions. No. The, 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 the atonement you rested in years ago is the atonement we're to rest in today. If God tarries for a hundred years, the church will rest in the same atonement. Not a different atonement. 
And this is what the Holy Spirit, by God's Word, leads us to believe. Jesus says, I will send you another comforter to make known to you the things that I have taught you, he said to his disciples. But that's for us. We have the Scriptures, but left to ourselves, we're blind, we're deaf, we're stupid, and we can't understand it. But God sends to us His Holy Spirit so that He leads us in truth. He comforts us. When you sin, you feel guilty. When you sin, you feel dirty. When you sin, you've offended God. And you may even tremble that He's going to strike you down and the Holy Spirit comforts you. He doesn't comfort you by saying, oh, you're really a good person, it's okay. He comforts you by reminding you of what Christ did to wash that sin away. See, it's our resting in the finished work of Christ that washes us of our sins. Verse 8. As we read this psalm, as we read other parts of Scripture that are in the same context of when this psalm was written, we can see that David is aching. We can see that David is weeping. There's another text said that he he laid on his couch and he filled his couch with tears. He's in a mournful, sad place because of his sin. And in verse 8 he says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David moves in this verse to praying for the fruit of, of being cleansed and forgiven to be experienced. It's one thing to say, Jesus has forgiven all my sins. It's one thing to say, Jesus' righteousness is my righteousness and still be down in the dumps because you sinned. To still be inactive for the kingdom because you're not worthy to serve. You're not worthy to do because you just feel so unworthy. See, we not only need to believe that what Jesus did cleanses us, but we need to experience it. We need to experience the joy of the Lord. We need to be filled with gladness. Again, it's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing altogether to enjoy that forgiveness. See, I think that's why God designed singing. Have you ever believed a truth and then when you sing that truth, it moves you in a very different way than when you cognitively thought of that truth? That's the gift of music. That's the gift of song. That when we sing truths, they hit us in such a way that it's moving in our soul to say, you are washed, you are clean, rejoice. Faith not only believes... Faith rejoices, but only God can work these things into our lives. Faith is a gift. His Word is a gift. And when faith and His Word are both active in our soul by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we believe and we rejoice. David believes the good news of the gospel, and now he desires God to restore his joy. He doesn't want to weep over his sins anymore. He doesn't want to lie on his couch inactive anymore. He wants to be filled with joy and gladness. 
So he can be filled with joy, not guilt. Filled with gladness, not sorrow. See, beloved, there's a proper guilt and there's a proper sorrow that we should experience when we sin. We're offending a holy God. This is not a light matter. But because we're frail, we can take it too far or we cannot take it serious at all. Those are, those are two ditches on either side. We're not sorry for our sin or we're so sorry we can't function. And David is saying, Lord, I am overwhelmed with grief and I need you to fill me with joy and gladness. David is teaching us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. David did not have literal broken bones. But his whole being was crushed and smashed and undone as God's word, God's law, God's truth, God's glory, God's righteousness was heavy upon him. Think about it. God is holy and we are not. In Christ we're holy. In Christ we're righteous. But naturally we are neither of those things. And when God presses truth down upon us, we're undone. That's what David is speaking about. His whole being felt as if it was broken under the holiness of God. And yet that was meant to heal him. See, we live in a culture today, oh, don't tell somebody truth, you might offend them. Oh, don't tell somebody truth, you might make them sad or you might make them mad. So people are left to themselves. The Bible tells us that if you leave someone to themselves, the only end game is ruin and misery. We live in a society that says, if you tell somebody two plus two is four, and you mean it, and you say that there's no other option, you hurt somebody. No. Truth is established by God. Absolute truth exists. Why? Because God exists. Things are real. They're not imaginary. But yet people say, well, I want to live in a world that's like this. And the world says back to them, well, then you can I want to live in a world where I imagine everything is this way. Well, then you can. The church cannot do that because God has said, this is my world. This is how I created it. This is my design. This is my truth. This is my law. And this is how you're to live. And not only this is how you're to live, church, this is what we're to bring to the world. See, David was crushed so he could be made whole. David was broken so he could be healed. Do we believe that God does that? Do we believe God has the right to do that? See, if you talk to anybody in sports or athletes in general, when you lift weights, you're actually tearing your muscles. You want to take it to a place that you tear them enough, but don't tear them fully. And then as they heal themselves, they get bigger. So every athlete believes it's good to break your body to make it stronger. Yet when it comes to Christianity, we want a God that just coddles us and cuddles us and doesn't do anything to put stress upon us and make us into the image of Christ. It takes pressure to take a lump of dirt and make it into the image of the Son. It takes trials. It takes tribulations. How do we know that? Because God says in this life you will have them. If God tells us we will have them, then it's by his design that we have them. And we have them to make us more like Christ, not to ruin us. 
See, when we look at God wrongly and we say, this trial shouldn't be upon me, Lord, I'm your child. We're saying to the potter, he has no right to mold us. We're saying to the sculptor, he has no right to take that chunk out, even though that chunk makes us look more like the world than it does Christ. Verse 9, David says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. David is not praying for God to be ignorant. So many people teach as if God just throws sins away and doesn't even think about them again. He's sovereign. He knows everything. David is praying for God to be forgiving. Listen to what David declared in Psalm 103. He says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. See, the problem is, is that sometimes we get so full of ourselves, we don't remember that we're dust. We think that we're co-ruling with God in an arrogant way rather than a humble servant way. And God presses down upon us to remind us who's God and who's not God. He reminds us who is altogether lovely and who is not altogether lovely. And he does so to mold us into the glorious image of his Son. We must remember every day that God disciplines those he loves to restore them, not to destroy them. For he is for us, not against us. For the Lord's plans for us are peace and not for evil to give us a future and a hope. For those in Christ Jesus have eternal life already and those who the Son sets free are free indeed. Not free to sin. Not free to be worldly, but free to obey. Free to love. Free to serve. Free to worship. Free to pray. See, God has set us free to do the things he created Adam and Eve to do naturally before the fall. We're, we're set free to be Christ-like. So as we look at Christ in the gospel, that's the freedom that we've been given. We haven't been given freedom to live however we want, and then God just washes it away. Shall we sin so grace abounds? What's the answer from the American church today? Sure, if it brings the world in. Sure, if it makes you happy. Sure. The Bible says, God forbid. Does grace abound when we sin? Praise God, it does. But when we sin with an open hand, assuming that grace abounds, that is a great and terrible sin. It's a great offense against our God. Because we know he will be forgiving, we sin anyways. That's a ditch on the wrong side of the walk of faith. 
The ditch on the other side is every time I sin, God can't forgive me, and I'm on one step, I'm losing my salvation. I'm closer to hell every day. Those are both ditches in the middle, rejoicing that when we sin, grace abounds, and Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. Then David says this in verse 10, Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In other words, David by his sin had made his own heart dirty. Why? Where did his actions with Bathsheba come from? Where did his letter to the commander in the army come from? It came from his lust and it came from his lies, which came from within. David made his inside dirty before he made his outside dirty, and now he cries out for God to work. David continues to cry out to God, for only God can save by creating life where there is only death, and only God can restore by recreating what was lost. See, isn't that the beauty that we believe? That God speaks and life comes into existence? But then the fall happens, and we're told that in the fall, death was brought into the world. Destruction, pain, suffering, sin, wickedness, evil. And yet God recreates. He restores his people, and he draws them to himself. Every time we sin, we need to be cleansed on the inside. We need to have a clean heart, and we need to be re-situated to desire to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, to put on the new man, to renew our mind with the Word of God rather than to continue to walk in sin. The Lord gives us a new heart when He regenerates us and raises us from the dead, and when we sin, He cleanses that heart and renews our heart. This is the evidence of true repentance. Not only wanting to be forgiven and cleansed, but also restored to sweet communion and fellowship with God in the household of faith. See, that's the beauty. Is that we believe in the perseverance of the saints. We believe that those that God saves can never be lost. Why? Is it because we never sin? Do do we believe in holiness theology? That we can be perfect for one second so we can be perfect for a minute? We can be perfect for an hour, we can be perfect for a day, and then we can rest that we never sin again. Some people believe that. No, we believe that the God who saved us will keep us. The God who sent his son into the world to save sinners did a perfect job. And the sins that we sin have already been paid for have already been paid for. When you repent of a sin today, tomorrow, and the next day, you're not asking Jesus to pay for it. You're rejoicing that he already has. And you're asking him to cleanse you with his righteousness. See, true repentance, the Bible tells us, leads to life. Godly sorrow leads to life. Not just the phrase eternal life, salvation, but life, living. But godly sorrow leads to death. Not only death at the end when God judges you when you die, but death every day because you're not really living. If you only experience worldly sorrow, you're not really living. 
You're dirty. You feel unclean. But when you feel godly sorrow, true repentance, that's the work of the Spirit in us. Listen to verse 11. It's a very debated verse, but I think it's a glorious verse that's been abused in our day. David says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David makes two requests, but they're really, in fact, one and the same. Jesus says, I will be with you to the end of the age. I will not forsake you and leave you as orphans, but I'll be with you. How is Jesus with us? It's by the Holy Spirit. God's presence with us is by the work, ministry, and person of the Holy Spirit. God gives us the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, as a guarantee of our inheritance to dwell in us as believers and among us as a church. Do we believe that? That every single believer is indwelt by the Spirit, but the Spirit also is with us in our worship. Some think this is a problem for Old Testament saints only. They believe that, well, an Old Testament saint was, they were saved a different way than us, and God could take away the Holy Spirit and give the Holy Spirit and take away the Holy Spirit and give the Holy Spirit. Well, God does that externally in the Old Testament. He certainly does. He gives the Holy Spirit to Saul. When Saul sins, God takes away the Holy Spirit, and Saul goes mad. But Saul wasn't a believer. See, when God gives the Holy Spirit to a believer, it's a gift of guaranteed inheritance. If God can take away the Holy Spirit, then you can lose your salvation. And I hear that too. I actually talked to a pastor one time. He said, oh, I believe no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. No one can pluck us out of the Son's hand. The Spirit indwells us, but we jumped in and we can jump out. That's not perseverance of the saints. That's not given as a gift of guaranteed inheritance. That's someone saying, I saved myself by jumping in, and if I sin bad enough, it's me jumping out. If that's where you are today, then I pray that you repent and rejoice that the salvation God worked for you is far better than that. He's greater than our sins. We are great sinners. He is a greater Savior. That's what worship is. Confessing that we are great sinners, but He is a greater Savior. It's not saying, we're good people, God. Thank you for gathering good people. It's not worship. And yet you listen to most praise songs today, especially on K-Love. That station is driving me out of my mind. It's all about you. Not about you with a capital Y, but you with a little Y. It's not worship. That's called idolatry. That's called the idol of self. All sinners that are saved, those in the Old Testament, those today, those in the future, all sinners that are saved are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast, and all have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or they couldn't believe. A man must be born again to see the kingdom of God. 
A person must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said. He said that before the cross. That's the truth. All died in Adam. You must be raised from the dead to be saved. That's the work of the Spirit. It's not the work of the flesh. Did Lazarus awaken himself? His own sister said he's been in there so long, he stinks. His body's rotting. Why do you want to take the stone away, Jesus? Because I am the resurrection, Jesus said. I know in the future you're the resurrection. It's not what I'm talking about. And when the stone is rolled away, Lazarus is still dead. But when Jesus speaks the words of life, Lazarus is raised. That's a picture of salvation. That's what that picture is for. That in your sins, you're dead. You're not righteous. You're not alive. You're in enmity to God. And God speaks life to you. How? Through the secondary cause of the church. We need to see that this is David's David's humble request. Why? Knowing and believing that his sins are so heinous that he deserves to lose all God's blessings. Do you see the difference? From David's perspective, it would be right, God, if you took the Holy Spirit away. It would be right, God, if you left me. It would be right, God, if you stripped me of everything and sent me to hell. But I cry out on your mercy and your grace. Because of your steadfast love, Lord, please work on my behalf. See the difference? Some people look at this and just say theologically, well, maybe it can happen, maybe it can't happen. That's not the point. The point is David is in agony because he has sinned against the holy God, the God that he loves, the God that he trusts. He distrusted him when he sinned with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. And instead of saying, well, theologically, I know that if you're saved, you can never lose your salvation, so I'm good and go about life. No, he's on his face before God, and he says, Lord, don't take your presence away from me and don't take your Holy Spirit. Why? Because if God does, he's done. If God leaves you and leaves me for a second, we're done. Absolutely undone forever. We would be given over to lawlessness and more lawlessness and more lawlessness. And someone would read about us in the paper and say, wow, that guy has really gone the wrong way. But God promises never to leave us or forsake us. Just because God promises not to do something doesn't mean it's wrong to pray this. It's right to pray this. Lord, my sin is so ugly. You have the right to do this as a holy God. But I pray you won't. And I believe you won't because you promised you won't. See the difference? Sinning is assuming God will forgive you. Your prayer shouldn't reflect that horrible assumption, right? Our prayers are to be humble cries to God to say, do what only you can do. Because you alone are mercy. You alone are pure. You alone are holy. You alone have a love that never wavers. Our love wavers. Right? But God's doesn't. David knows that if God took his spirit from me, he would be eternally lost and sent to hell. But because of the new covenant promises... All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. 
Therefore, God will never take his spirit away from his elect because they have been given the spirit as a guarantee. He's faithful even when we're not. Isn't that what John tells us in 1 John? That God is always faithful even when we're not? We better believe that because even when we leave this place today, we'll sin. We sin every day. We sin every day by not doing what He commands us to do. That's still a sin. We sin every day by doing what He's commanded us not to do. Do you believe He'll still be faithful? Or does His faithfulness hang on your perfect obedience? That's arrogant Christianity. Humble Christianity says, I'm a wicked sinner, but God's so faithful, I know that this wicked sinner will go to glory for one reason, because he loved me. See, if you come up with a list why you should go to heaven, you're trusting in yourself. Oh, Lord, I did this. Oh, Lord, I did this. Oh, Lord, I... Stop. That's boasting. There's one reason why sinners go to heaven. It's because God has loved us. And sent his son for us to do what we couldn't do. The fallen man's heart doesn't even want to submit to the law of God. And Paul says, indeed it cannot. There's no such thing as an obedient sinner. There's an obedient Christ. And when we're in him, he works obedience in us and through us by the work of the Spirit. Rebel sinners are exactly that, rebel sinners. They can't obey in their own strength. And the believer says, I don't want to live that life anymore. I don't want to walk by the flesh anymore. I don't want to be my own king. I don't want to be my own God. I don't want to be my own Lord. I don't want to be my own law. I want to be in Christ. I want to live for his glory, under his law, for his exaltation, and my good, and my neighbor's good. That's why the second commandment is love others as yourself. Those whom he foreknew, he calls, he justifies, he sanctifies, and he glorifies. And he loses none. Loses none. For his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 12. David cries out, he continues to cry out, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. It would make sense to say, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. I don't think that's a wrong statement. But David is so focused on the beauty and glory of God, the one who saved him. It's God's salvation worked in us. And he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God loves a cheerful giver. What does that mean? God is a cheerful giver, right? His commands reflect himself. When God gives of himself, he does it willingly and joyfully. Or he doesn't do it. He doesn't go against his will. Being restored is a sovereign act of Almighty God. God, as he disciplines those he loves, he removes their joy for a season because of their sin. We've all experienced it. We've all experienced the time where it feels like there's just no joy. What do we do? Sometimes we blame God. Sometimes we blame others. But see, God removes our joy. He doesn't remove himself. He removes the enjoyment of himself. 
Why? Because you can't enjoy what is holy and what is sinful at the same time. John says you can't love the world and love God. So if God filled you with a joy as you loved the world, as you loved your sin, what would you conclude? Wow, this sin is awesome. I can do this and praise God. So when we're in sin, God removes that fellowship, removes that joy. Why? Because he's disciplining us. He's loving us. He's saying, not over there, son. Not over there, daughter. And in that condition, we feel abandoned, don't we? See, when we're taken to that valley, our flesh says, this is a bad place. That's wrong, isn't it? Because in the valley, God teaches us to see, doesn't he? Oh, it's fun being on the mountain, everything going well, hands lifted high, God's awesome, everything's awesome. Those are gifts when you're on the top of the mountain. But much of this life is spent in the valley, in the valley of the shadow of death. That's this world. We live here. And when he takes us into the valley, he takes us there to equip us for a heavenly kingdom. We're being prepared for a new land. Did God not have the right to prepare Israel for 40 years in the wilderness before he let them go into Canaan? Didn't he strip them of many sinful, wicked people before he let them in? See, God is stripping us of our sins in the valley. God is at work in the valley. And through repentance, he graciously restores us and holds us up by his loving hand. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. See, nobody wants to go into the valley. But when you hear his voice calling you into the valley, you have to go. You have to go. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. See, sometimes in the valley you say, I- I'm going to die. I'm gonna- I can't take it. In- I'm not going to make it one more second. I'm going to die. You'll never perish. We will die in this life, right, physically, but we'll never perish if we're believers. If the moment we die physically, we're in the presence of the Lord, that's actually good news. That's how the fear of death is stripped away from believers. See, unbelievers live in the fear of death every day, and what does the Bible say? That produces sin. Have you ever thought of that? That all the sin that the world does is produced by their fear of death. That's why people become crazed for stuff because that's how they try to stifle their fear of death by buying more stuff and getting more stuff and doing more stuff. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I mean, that doesn't even talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's just talking about the two persons of the Trinity and how they can't lose us. And the Spirit is in us, and we can't be lost. Listen to what David said in Psalm 63. He says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Do you see the link? 
that he's crying out for joy and gladness, and later he writes a song about his joyful praise. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. Some nights are dark and they're hard and they're long. It's more exhausting trying to sleep than being awake. And yet those are times God wants us to ponder and meditate who he is. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. See, by faith we cling to God. But if that's your only picture of salvation, what if you slip? See, the beauty of salvation is that faith clings to Christ and faith clings to God and God has us upheld by His mighty hand. See, faith is obedience. Faith is the secondary cause, but the primary cause is God holding us. It's the beauty of salvation. It's God's work. God keeps us. So I want to ask, have you heard the voice of the great shepherd in the Scriptures? See, we're told today... You know, books like the Jesus Calling, that you just, you go out someplace by yourself, empty your mind, and Jesus just tells you stuff. You know, Jesus talks to you today, it's in the Scriptures. It's where His voice is heard, in the Scriptures. When the Holy Spirit speaks to us, He's bringing to remembrance the things that we've read in Scripture. So have you heard the voice of the Great Shepherd in the Scriptures? Have you put your faith in God and God alone? Are you satisfied with Him? Do you ponder and meditate on who God is? Do you cling to Him alone to be saved the first time and every day after that? Then rejoice that no one can snatch you out of His hand, for He is sovereign. See, sometimes God takes us to the valley to remind us that that little grip of faith is insufficient to hold on itself. It takes the work of God. No, this is required. You're not saved unless you believe. You're not saved unless you cry out by faith. You're not saved unless you abide in Christ. But the way that we do is that God is upholding us. So sometimes he takes us in the valley to strip away any self-sufficiency in the grip and to be reminded that we're upheld by his sovereign hand. Rejoice that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all at work for your salvation. If God is for you, who can be against you? Isn't that the whole point? Isn't that the point in Hebrews that people are dying for Jesus' sake, but if God is for you, who can be against you? Oh, they may cut your head off. They may throw you in jail. They may, you may lose your job. You may be fined, whatever the thing may be. But what can man do to you, really? If they can't take away your salvation, which we say is the greatest gift, if they can't take away your God, which is our great reward, then all they can do is strip away temporary things a little early. Right? They can't take away the things that matter. I want to look at verse 13 just a little. We'll pick it up next week for some more. But David helps us to understand in the next verse that it's not enough. It's not the end goal to merely be restored. restored. It's not enough to be filled with joy and gladness again. 
but that being restored to God actually produces glorious fruit in our walk of faith. Look at verse 13. Think about all that he said in the, in the first 12 verses. All that he said about the greatness of God and working in and through him and forgiving him and washing him and restoring him. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Is David saying, my witness will be so good that I will save sinners? That's not what he's saying. Please don't read it that way. David's saying, when you restore me, I'm going to tell the world that you saved me. I'm going to go tell the world the gospel, secondary cause. And sinners will be saved. Do we believe it? Do we believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? Because that's what David's saying. David's saying, I can't go witness as I'm having an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. I can't go witness as I'm murdering Uriah. But when you wash me, when you restore me, my goal is to tell of a great God who forgives sinners. And I know you will. Because if you don't think God can save and will save, then don't witness. Because you won't be witnessing about the God of the Bible. You'll be witnessing about a God of possibility, a door of possibility. No, we witness and say, all those that come to Christ will be saved. None will be put to shame. Why? Because the Bible tells us Christ came to save sinners, which we are the chief in our own eyes, right? See, our witness depends on us believing that God is sovereign. Our witness depends on us believing that God washes away our sins. Because it's the only way we'll open our mouth. It's the only way we will speak the good news of the gospel. David is not, not going back to sinning when he's restored. That's how some people think, right? Oh, God forgive me of last night. Let's go out and do it again. He'll forgive me again. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, God forgave me. And I'm going to go make known his holy name. Think about criminals. They stand before an earthly judge, whether it's at parole or whether it's at sentencing. Have you learned your lesson? Oh, I've learned my lesson. Have you, do you have a desire to go back into society and be a, a, a healthy person in society? Oh, yes, I do. And as soon as they walk out the door, they call their old buddies and they go right back to the things they were doing before. Because that's the world. Criminals are criminals. Murderers are murderers. Thieves are thieves. Liars are liars. They're just going to go right back to doing it. But a child of God, when he tastes forgiveness, puts away those things. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. David murdered. David committed adultery. But he wasn't a murderer and he wasn't an adulteress. Do you, do you, do you understand the difference? He did the sin and he was guilty of the sin, but that wasn't who he was. He's a child of the king. He's a man after God's own heart. Do you see the difference? Do you view your walk of God because you had a good day yesterday? Or do you view your walk with God because God is great and he's cleansed all your sins that you've done in the past and he will cleanse them in the future. You're filled with hope. David is telling us that restoration to God produces action for, obedience to, and worship of God, all by faith. David says that when I'm restored to the joy of the Lord, then I will proclaim his word to the world around me. 
But again, that's not even the end. For by David's actions, all by God's design, all by God's grace, is the salvation of God's people. God chose a people before the foundation of the world, and throughout all of history, he has been saving the elect by the preaching of his word, both the law and the gospel by other believers, the church. The Bible tells us in former days, in former times, God spoke to the prophets in many different ways. We're not going to argue that. They had dreams, they had visions, they heard audible voices. But today he speaks to us through his son, the word, the scriptures, the finished work of Christ. We're not to look back to the old and say, well, I don't have to witness to my neighbor. Maybe he'll have a dream. I don't have to go to that Muslim country because maybe they'll have a dream. No, God has established the secondary cause of the church preaching the truth in love as the means to save sinners. In other words, the church, see the picture. Christ is the husband. The church is his bride. What happens in a relationship between a husband and wife? Children are produced. That's the natural conclusion, right? That's the same for the church. Christ is the head. The church is the the, the obedient wife. And through their relationship, it produces children, spiritual children. And spiritual children are produced how? Faith come by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. How will they hear unless someone is sent? Blessed are those beautiful feet who go, right? And the passage that's quoted is what? Our God reigns. It's not quoted in Romans, but if you go back and read the quote, how beautiful the feet. It's all about God reigning. When you go with the message of the gospel, it's because you believe God's reigning. When you go to your neighbor, you're not saying, well, I wonder if he'll believe. I wonder if he'll submit. I wonder if he'll do the right thing. You're going saying, my God saves. I'm going to bring the good news. He raises the dead. And we rest when he saves, and we rest when he judges. Because when people say no to the gospel, we don't know if they'll believe, right? There might be a time that they believe. But we believe that God's word never goes out and returns void. It accomplishes what God sent it for. Sometimes he sends it for life. And like the prophet Isaiah, sometimes he sends it till they're all dead. You want to be the prophet Isaiah? Lord, how long do you want me to preach? Till they're all dead. Till their eyes are closed and they can't see. Till their ears are deaf and they can't hear. Till their mind's dark and they can't understand. Was Isaiah not worth sending out? Do you want to rip Isaiah out of your Bible because it's not worth hearing? Oh, no, it's glorious. There's, it's dripping with Christ, right? See, we can't say, Lord, if I go out and witness, you've got to save this person because I don't want to look like a fool. No, you say, Lord, thank you for the privilege for being able to share your gospel. Lord, please save this person. Lord, please redeem this person. Lord, please save this sinner. You plead with him like you plead with yourself. Did David plead for himself? Of course he did. And God answered his prayer. And when God answered his prayer, he went and preached the gospel. All of humanity fell away from God in Adam's fall. And through Christ. By faith, sinners are returning to God. 
What a glorious and gracious God we serve. He not only saves us, but then he uses us, sinners, to save sinners, to build his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and good God. We thank you, Lord, that you don't just sweep sins under the rug of heaven, but that you made a perfect atonement for them. Father, we thank you for Christ. Help us to trust in his righteousness alone. Help us to trust in his atonement alone. And help us, because of that, to hate sin. Help us to flee sin. Help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness because those are the new taste buds you've given us. Help us to seek your kingdom first because you have taken us out of this world. Help us to be in this world and yet not of this world because we're citizens of a new kingdom. Father, help us to rest in the finished work of Christ so that we can have joy and understand that his finished work has cleansed us from our sins. Father, forgive us for the times this week that we tried to make atonement for our own sins or we left our sins un cleansed because we tried to do something in our own strength or do nothing at all. Father, I pray that we would rejoice today because you are a God who saves and a God who sanctifies and a God who one day will glorify us. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to be witnessing to those around us because Their time and our time is short. And your coming is near. Father, help us to be about your work while it's still day. Help us to joyfully preach the gospel, knowing and trusting and believing that you save sinners. We ask these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.